This is an AMI podcast. Hi, I'm Fern Nullum, and welcome to Into You, the podcast where we put love under the microscope, shedding light on the do's, don'ts, and nightmare scenarios we find ourselves in while flirting with romance. Don't fib. Don't lie about who you are, because it's just not going to work. We all come at dating from a slightly different angle, but we are often faced with very similar situations to shape up to. Men gain a number of significant health benefits from being married. Women only get those benefits if it's a good marriage. Don't be too competitive when dating. It's fine. It's just a game. Let's get our priorities right here. Dating can uncover things about ourselves we never knew before. So without further ado, let's get into you. I had another point there and I forgot it again. Goodness me. Well, that's because you've got so much information in your brain, James. <laughs> hey, yep, it's your favourite part of the month again. Time for another instalment of psychological shenanigans here on Into You. And today it's part two of our intriguing journey as we explore the ins and outs of human attraction juicy topic or what? Last time I spoke to Dr. James Jackson, a psychology researcher and lecturer on human attraction and how hormones shape our bodies at Leeds Trinity University. He outlined why some people seem so much more naturally attractive than others. Attraction is health and if people come across as being healthy, then they are often seen as being attractive. And warned us about how bad we all are at interpreting what our bodies are trying to tell us. We don't really know what our body's doing. Or even if we do know, we're pretty clueless as to why it's doing it. If you've not yet heard that episode, it might be an idea to skip back and check that out first. Later in today's episode, James discusses whether opposites really do attract. All the research suggests that's not true, but generally you find that people tend to approach and end up in relationship with people of equal attractiveness. And offers some words of wisdom for those who have ever been rejected by someone they really liked. The fact that there isn't anything there that's going to work. There are going to be plenty of people out there for whom it will work, and you've got to try to turn down that dial and move on. But first, I'd often heard people talk of attraction as a type of chemistry between two people, and I couldn't help but wonder if there was literally chemistry at play here. There is, there is. The start of this, one thing that I'm sure most people will realise as well, but male sweat smells more than female sweat. Apparently we've got a bit more sulphur in play or some other such things. So the cluster of new ones that are called the um, vomeronasal organ, it's definitely a thing in rats and in other animals. In human being, it's still there, but does it work, does it not you know, we're kind of losing it and we're evolving away from it. But it does mean that when people are together, a woman had some subconscious ability to consider the smell and the pheromones coming off male body odour. And I like the classic one that I've always liked, the sweaty T-shirt study. They got some volunteers, six male volunteers, I think it was, to wear a white cotton T-shirt for two days. No showering, no bathing. 
do a bit of exercise, really sweat in it and get it properly crusty. And then they handed it to the experimenters who probably handled it with, I don't know, with tongs or something and put them in glass jars. You know, the kind of glass jars you get when you've got the wax to make sure the lid's sealed on so the smell's kept inside. And then they got the best part of 100 women to smell these six T-shirts by lifting up the lid, having a whiff, and then putting the lid back down again. And it's found that rather than thinking, oh, they all think they're all horrible, found that women like the smell of some of them, but not the smell of others. And it was found that when a woman reported that she liked the smell of the male odour, that's when he's carrying certain information about his immune system that is different from hers. So arguably, there's some information in the smell that a woman can detect that makes this man more of a match because genetically you'll produce a child with a better immune system. But this man, if too similar to me, doesn't give me the benefits of a mixed hybrid immune system. So it's less of a goer. It's also the reason why women tend to be repulsed by the smell of their brothers and their fathers and everything else. They're too close genetically. So it just stinks. So a woman is after somebody different. And I would say when you have a relationship, I don't think this thing's really apparent right at the very start. First date, everyone's trying not to smell a body odor. You know, it, it's a positive thing. But imagine if someone's been staying over a few times and they slept on a pillow and that smell's still there. And on some level, a woman going, nah. And things sort of just fizzle off. And there's a number of things like this which don't necessarily come into play at the start, but they do a little later. And you were talking there about smell. And Hmm. of course, I don't think we could do a programme on attraction without asking, how much does attraction have to do with looks? I think right at the start, it's all people have to go on, literally. So the idea that opposites attract, all the research suggests that's not true. But generally you find that people tend to approach and end up in relationship with people of equal attractiveness. So you actually tend to play the league you're in, if you want to look at it that way. I know there are strategies, male strategies, according to research, it's not me going out in nightclub doing this, but research is men will tend to approach the most attractive woman in the room. She will turn him down because she's looking for the most attractive man in the room. And then he will move to the second most attractive woman and then the third and the fourth and the fifth. And we're working way down this way. So arguably he ends up with the most attractive woman who tolerated face. (laughs) How romantic. (laughs) Yeah, it all starts getting, oh, when you think about these things. But it's supposed to be the idea that men tend to be a little bit more optimistic to start with. So you, you also find at the start, particularly in men, men are looking in terms of reproductive capacity, even if you don't think they are. They're the suggestion to arguably you're looking at youth, the illusion of youth, health, the illusion of health, in order to make decisions in that way. Whereas with women, it's slightly more complicated, it's slightly more nuanced, because for starters, women are biologically more complicated because you've got the menstrual cycle to consider as well. And a woman's preference for men changes depending on where she is in her menstrual cycle. And you have to consider whether she'd have to have a short-term or a long-term relationship. If she'd have to have a longer-term relationship, it's less relevant. There are a lot of factors at play. I'm fascinated by what you said about the menstrual cycle. How does it change? 
Yeah, well, I have this slide that I put up on screen for my student, and because I lecture psychology at Leeds Trinity, the only course that's more female-dominated than psychology is nursing. Mm-hmm. 200 students in a room, 90% of them are females. So I have a picture. It's a picture of the same man, but there's three images of him. In one of them, he has what's called increased facial masculinity. So his jaws being made a lot wider. They're the correct one in the middle. And on the other side, that one when they've kind of shrunk the jaw in to indicate less testosterone. The idea of more testosterone means more bones in your face. So what we call facial masculinity. And it's supposed to be that when a woman is ovulating, she prefers the very masculine face. And when she's menstruating, she prefers the less masculine face. Again, it's the idea, the importance of dressing well and the idea of emphasizing the strength that you have. And you get past things. Because although we're talking about attraction, they all set the idea, well, what if you're friends first and then you have a relationship later? Yes. It's when you meet someone of the opposite sex. And again, this is heterosexual research here. And for some reason, you're not able to have a relationship. Perhaps you're in a relationship. Perhaps they're in a relationship. You work in the office. You get to know each other. But for some reason, your relationship ends and you're kind of back on the market again. Apparently, it's optimal if you know someone for, believe it or not, that actually the research said this, for nine months before you're both available, then the level of attractiveness that you have is irrelevant. And everything about that relationship is based on personality and shared interests and all the other things. So it does show that while attractiveness is that first thing, allow you to pair off with someone suitable for long-term relationships or when you get to know somebody like that it's all down to interest and personality because at some point you've actually got to physically live with each other. Yes that's the tricky part and obviously sometimes if you are really attracted to somebody but then like you say you start hanging out with them and spending time with them and getting to know them and they're really not very nice as a person you could easily become unattracted to them perhaps. Yeah, no, I think that's one of those things that at the start, you know, that subconscious is going, this is a suitable person to have a baby with, and that will produce a good baby and protect my genes. But that isn't really super fulfilling because you're thinking in terms of your entire behaviour being dominated by some protein that wants to replicate. But really, you have to go through the other things as well. You need to have that shared quality. And you suddenly find out that they smoke and they haven't been smoking. Oh, you're a dog person, they're a cat person. Or you like iguanas and they like tarantulas. And it's just, what can you possibly do together to enjoy each other's company? So that's why when you think about things, even if you're online dating, speed dating, whatever it is, don't fib. Don't lie about who you are because it's just not going to work. It literally will not. There is stuff in online dating, though, that generally, after reading some research the other week, most lies on online dating websites are tiny white lies. A man might add an extra couple of inches to his height and a woman might drop a few pounds off. But generally, people tend to tell the truth. It's really hard, isn't it? Because obviously online dating can be so judgmental. So we want to present ourselves in the best light. But then, like you say, at some point or another, it's all just going to come out. (laughs) I think it's something that's interesting because the way you mentioned judgmental, I think you're absolutely right. The person who came up with Match.com in an interview said something along the lines of how I think I've ruined dating. Because where it used to be about people meeting, it's become a little bit more consumerist now. 
swipe left, swipe right, don't like him, don't like him, don't like And it, it's getting away from the fact that that's actually a proper person. And I think that's a shame. But I suppose what you're saying is if somebody doesn't immediately feel amazingly attracted to you just based on looks, there is still some hope that you might be able to win them round. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, if you have enough in common, it will happen. I don't think you can make it happen. I don't think you can really kind of convince people in that way. So it's really a sense of just sharing time together without any kind of desperate love actually type manoeuvres or anything like that. And if you share interest, you just want to do things together. When you look at the effects and the benefits you can have from a long-term relationship, it actually shapes and changes the dimensions of the heart. That may sound more romantic, but when you think about blood pressure, you've got to think that stuff is being pumped out of your heart. It's not just liquid. It's got blood cells. It's got things in it. And as it ricochets around your arteries and it comes back to the heart, the heart has got to absorb that blood and then pump it back out again. One of the reasons why the heart's lopsided, because one half is pumping it around the body and the other half is just pumping it to the lungs and back. It's shown that when people are in a long-term relationship, they tend to be married couple relationships, but there's no reason why this can't happen with civil partnerships or with people who just choose to live together. If you rate your marital satisfaction as high and you spend time with each other, over time it reduces your blood pressure when you spend more time with each other and it actually reduces that lopsidedness of the heart which reduces the chance of issues further on. Are you living longer if you're married simply because of the joys of marriage? Or is it because you've got someone sat opposite you every day to remind you to take your heart medication? (laughs) That is definitely part of it. Well, yes. I mean, the joys of marriage. I think some people would say you might live longer if indeed you're not married. (laughs) Certainly, it's interesting, it's worth pointing out. Men gain a number of significant health benefits from being married. Women only get those benefits if it's a good marriage. If a woman is unhappy in her marriage, it's actually quite a negative thing for her. But the man still gets the positives. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of the thing about psychology that well, like just common sense, isn't it? Well, men, consider yourself told you've got to commit. It's going to be good for you health-wise. <laughs> so we were talking, weren't we, about how you can't make somebody be attracted to you. But I'm really fascinated in these stories and documentaries we see, like the Tinder Swindler, where you can almost create an illusion of attraction and make somebody really believe that you're really attracted to them and in so doing, they become really attracted to you. How does that even happen? I think it's really hard to maintain it, to be honest with you. There'll be like a great deal of manipulation involved and kind of like darker stuff. But on a basic level at the start, it would be quite easy to generate a level of attraction between you both. So the idea is to simply make that first date exciting. So say going to a fun fair, you're on a roller coaster, you've gone upside down, your brain's thinking, I have no idea what's just happened but you've done the right thing and we're still alive, have some pleasure chemicals, your heart's beating faster, and then you look at your date who's next to you and begin to that misattribution thing again. 
this idea when you think, oh, they must be wonderfully attractive. And actually, you've just been upside down on a roller coaster. You do have these things. I find it really interesting because a lot of what you've been talking about are unconscious visual cues about what is attractive and what isn't attractive. Now, for me, who's registered blind, it makes me wonder how that impacts me and how I'm navigating this physiological world of attraction without the use of sight. Yeah, I think it's certainly to start off with, there is obviously that, that kind of superficial quality to it. I'm hard of hearing as you know, but that's one of those things where you can't see it. But at the same time, I wonder whether if I was in a noisy environment, in, you know, in a pub, and I'm having a conversation with someone, and I can't hear what they're saying, I would imagine if someone doesn't know me very well, they're not going to go, oh, it's because he's deaf. It's going to be a little bit thick, isn't he? You know, he's not following what I'm saying. So you, you, you can come across badly without really knowing something about it. Women find men more attractive if they've got a deeper voice, that it's supposed to be more testosterone in the Adam's apple and stuff like that. So it might just be that you're picking up on other indicators of testosterone instead. So there are ways to tell if the man's high in testosterone, whether it's broad shoulders, deep voice, sweat, other yes. such things there. So I suspect that you're still picking up on some of these things mm. and you're still making, you know, like conscious decision based on preferences and genetics and what have you. It's just might be slightly different to what other people would do, but you're still doing it in the way that I'm still doing it as well. James had made me think about all the many ways in which we can be attracted to someone other than simply thinking they are visually beautiful. I was interested to find out what else other people might be attracted to if looks were taken out of the equation. So, as is the protocol of most scientific studies in 2022, I put out a post on social media, and here are a selection of my favourite answers. The sentence reads, Aside from looks, I am really attracted to... Dot, 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 finish the sentence. Chrissy. A big, strong, warm hug. Yes, Chrissy. None of this half-hearted, one-armed business. I couldn't agree more. Caleb someone who's kind to everyone even when they don't have to be absolutely Caleb and may I say what a wonderful answer that is Stacy, someone who doesn't run at the first sign of difficulty oh yes relationships sure require resilience right Stacy? and Jamie aside from looks I'm really attracted to a flirty sense of humour someone who can tease me and make me feel sexy all at the same time well Jamie we all love a compliment dressed up as a joke don't we especially somebody as brainy and beautiful as you I'd never realised before just how many factors go into attraction and how naive so many of us are to put it all solely down to whether we are physically gorgeous enough to get noticed. After listening to what James had to say on the subject, it suddenly seemed that this was in fact only a very small piece of the attraction pie. And even if we perhaps hadn't won the facial symmetry stakes, we could still have a great deal of hope for getting a slice of the action. I wanted to find out more about how attraction had evolved over the years, and whether there are times when we should consciously try to avoid going purely on what our physiology is telling us.
people tend to end up with people from a similar cultural backgrounds, similar ethnicities, similar religions, etc. But if there's one positive thing, and there's only a few positive things about online dating, is that it puts people in contact with people they would normally never meet. And it increases the diversity available in terms of choices. And you do find that when people who ancestors originated from different parts of the world meet and you get mixed couples, that mix of genetics tend to produce children who are much healthier. Getting a diversity helps in the genetic pool because you want to move away from like you to somebody else to get that better mix. Right. So what should we be looking out for when we are dating to find a good partner? It's definitely that thing. I think I mentioned briefly at the start is that enduring myth the opposites attract. And apparently the research suggests that when 86% of us are dating, we're actually seeking someone different when we should actually be seeking someone similar. So you have to think about what you're doing. And it's interesting as well. And I found this really fascinating. I came across a paper a while ago because he was talking about first dates, where to go for a first date. And a lot of stuff on the websites and the media contradicts itself. I actually found one website that said, one of the top five places you can go to is a museum. You can share interests. And on another website, one of the top five worst places you can go is a museum. <laughs> if there's one thing for the research that I think is absolutely true and quite hard to do, the first date should not, I repeat, not involve alcohol. Ooh. And it's an interesting thing. That's a big one, isn't it? You might yes. think about a date, dinner, wine. But it turns out that when you have a first date, the man comes in with really high expectations about where this is going to go and the woman comes in with lower expectations as to where it's going to go because you've got more in play as it were if you're drinking you find that when a man drinks he becomes more relaxed you know the conversation free flows he becomes more himself and he probably thinks the date's going great yeah whereas you find even nowadays with social pressure if the woman is drinking, she actually, the research shows she's becoming concerned as to what signals she's sending off. Mm-hmm. So you actually find that when the woman is drinking, it's supposed to make her more stressed. So you find that a situation like that, then the couple are poles apart. So while it might make a good second date, it probably doesn't make a good first date. Say if you both like exercise, maybe she's both go for a run. Or if not, you both go for a walk. If you've both got dogs, take your dogs for a walk. Something that is not only indicating your interests, but actually being aware that if I spend the next 20 years with this person, we're going to have to do some of this. So we might have a proof. I like it. Or another good one is something like temping bowling. Even if the conversation falls a bit, you're still doing something and you're still playing a game. So providing you can resist the urge to crush your opponent... <laughs> It is a sense of doing a thing together, but without drinking is optimal. And then you can go away and think, should we have a second date? Should we go somewhere? Should we now break out the alcohol? So, yeah, don't be too competitive when dating. It's fine. It's just a game. Let's get our priorities right here. I wish I knew that back in the day. I had no idea. But it is a sense, though, that that's what the research actually does suggest. Alcohol on the first date puts the man and the woman in different places. So it just doesn't flow in the way that you would think it would. A lot of the brain is inhibited by alcohol, things like our social filters and what have you. And the highest form of cranial architecture that's unaffected by alcohol is something called the limbic system. And that's interested, amongst other things, with sex 
and sleeping and other such things. So by drinking, you're knocking out the clever you and you're just kind of releasing this thing out the box so that you can just see it going horrendously wrong on the first date if people drink a little bit too much, a little bit too quickly, get a little bit too tipsy and regret. Yeah, I think I need to do everything possible to try to get to the clever me. (laughs) I think that's a hard work in progress. But I'm just wondering, James, I know you said that this is based on heterosexual research. Is there much research into attraction in regards to other sexual orientations at all? Well, enough, it's a little bit more niche. I think it's a sad thing that it's a little bit more niche. If you have textbooks on these things, and I've, I've struggled to find research for students sometimes, you get, here's a chapter on attractiveness, here's a chapter on sexual orientation, but there isn't a chapter on attractiveness and sexual orientation. It's quite frustrating. I can say, because I'm more comfortable knowing it, that if you think about homosexual men, there is a line of research that does suggest that they prefer hypermasculine male shapes. You know, like the kind of one I gave with the broad shoulders and all that sort of stuff. But for homosexual women, it, it, it's, it's more complicated. So you find all kind of complexities involved in there. So in the menstrual cycle as well, it's just so much more complicated. But there is research there. And quite frankly, I don't see why there shouldn't be a lot more research in that. Yeah, we'll just leave it at women are more complicated for now. I think that's fair to say. It's fine. So finally, James, finally, finally, what are your main takeaways from this? What have you learnt from studying attraction about love, romance, relationships? What has it taught you? I think it's probably a case of learning more about myself. I think it's a case of looking back to past errors and understanding exactly why (laughs) probably being a little bit older and a little bit wider probably the thing that I think is probably the best thing is that if you find someone to be very attractive and they don't find you to be very attractive the best thing to do is move on while that might be really 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 hard for people to do the fact that there isn't anything there that's going to work there are going to be plenty of people out there for whom it will work and you've got to try to turn down that dial and move on. And that's a bit more of a thought exercise, but it's harder in practice than it is in reality. But it's probably the best thing all around. And I guess just not to internalise it so much, because a lot of times it is simply out of your hands. Yeah, I mean, you've got to think as well that if something doesn't work out, you shouldn't be looking in the mirror going, oh God, it's because I'm not attractive enough, it's because I, I don't wear the right clothes, it's because of this. Sometimes it just, in terms of evolution and in terms of what any shared child you have would be it's just not an optimal relationship so you need to move on and find that optimal relationship so a lot of the time I think people probably blame themselves for something that just wasn't meant to be and unless you stick your neck out you're not going to make the mistake the word of wisdom apparently you're supposed to marry your 13th partner I don't know how true that is But it's apparently by making hideous mistakes when you work your way down the line, you end up making less mistakes and you start getting closer and closer to what it is that actually makes you happy. Well, I guess that goes along with what you were saying about as you grow and as you learn, you look back and you think, not going to do that again. Yeah, that's the way when I make any mistakes is how I can actually live with myself (laughs) in the idea. Well, that was a mistake. That happened again. I wouldn't do that. And I think that's just a nice way to actually live the life. So look back on mistakes in the learning process. You've learned something, move on. 
and everything is much more positive when you do it that way. Well, that's all my questions, James. Was there anything that you wanted to say on this topic that we haven't covered yet? I don't think so. I think you've interrogated me pretty thoroughly. (laughs) You know what? I would have to agree. Yes, indeed. So if people want to find out more about you and your fascinating work, where can we go, James? Please tell us. I'm at Leeds Trinity University. I'm programme lead for the Master's Psychology Conversion degree. Feel free to look at the university website. At the same time, I also research in like stress hormones and tinnitus. So if anybody actually has tinnitus, the ringing sound in their ears, and would like to learn more, then, you know, there'd be some more information on the website there. Oh, it's been so fun talking to you, James. At times mind-blowing, but absolutely incredible. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure meeting you, Fern. Thank you for the invite. If you ever need a tame psychologist, then just let me know. Well, for a tame psychologist, James had certainly given me some fierce food for thought. His very science-backed information on attraction, a topic which can often be considered so personal and emotional, was very refreshing and had made me feel far less threatened by the drop-dead gorgeous Instagram models we can so often convince ourselves we must look like in order to be considered attractive. As always, I want to hear from you. What do you find most attractive about yourself? And how do you think your attraction has changed over time? Leave me a comment and let me know. For now, though, you've been listening to Into You with me, Fern Lullum. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. James Jackson, whose links will be in the show notes. Also to Joshua Holland and Sam Robinson for technical support and to the manager of AMI, Andy Frank. Leave me your feedback at feedback at ami.ca. And if you liked what you heard, make sure to search for Into You on your favourite or indeed any podcast distributing platform and subscribe for more episodes coming your way on the first Thursday of every month. Why don't you just go ahead and pop it in your diary right now?